young man, I carried my pack, and I lived the free life of a rover. On the Mary's Green Basin to the dusty outback. I think they're cool. I washed <laughs> my Matilda all over. Till in 1915, my country said, son, it's time to stop rambling for there's work to be done. So they gave me a tin hat and they gave me a gun. They sent me away to the war. And the band played Waltzing Matilda as we sailed away from the cave. But amidst all the cheers and the shouts and the tears, we sailed off for Gallipoli. Great, great tune. We all love it, don't we, folks? We all love it, and I'll be a normie. I like the Pogue version the most. I like the I like Shane McGowan's voice. Not gonna lie, I'm a I'm a plastic patty at heart. Even though I'm pretty sure I'm basically not any of the I don't have any hated Bogman in me. According to my pointless, uh, well, the thing is, they're all Germans anyway. Everybody's Krauts. Everybody's a fucking crowd, even the Celts. Ah. So, I want to start by addressing a question that someone asked yet last week that I realize on reflection I didn't answer terribly well. And it was, they asked me about, um, about idealism versus materialism as like a way to approach life and history and you know everything else reality even and they said well isn't the notion of class consciousness uh, idealist because the idea is it's an idea it's oh there's a class consciousness that we have to operate from and then that changes our behavior by making us join uh, unions maybe or do strikes or fight a revolution that's all ideas and i kind of got hung up on the word the definition and I think, and I think it's just because you know certain people come at questions from a different like uh, understanding of the terms involved, so they're gonna like ask you questions that sort of hit you at an angle. But now that I thought about it more, I think the key to understanding the distinction here is to say we've got a con say for example we've got the Constitution, right? Uh, yeah, we're gonna talk about the book tomorrow. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm almost done with, my, with the section, and I'm very, very enjoying it. I'm going to go through probably chapter by chapter on that one, because there's a lot of really important stuff, like uh, the shit on the, uh, the strike of uh, 1877 is very important. But anyway, we have a constitution in this country, right? We have constitutional order. Now, why is that? Why do we have a constitution? Why is it written the way it is? There's one theory that says, well, it's because the Founding Fathers believed X, Y, and Z about natural rights and governance, and that that's why it's the way it is. That is an idealist understanding of history. There is another that says these were the richest people in North America at the time. They were fighting essentially a separatist war, the same way that like the Trade Federation was in the prequels, to get a better deal in the global uh, market for their product, which they saw as a local product because it be benefited local ruler, uh, a local 
uh, elites, landowners, large landowners in the south, and uh, and merchants in the north. And they fought on behalf of their prerogatives to extract money from the earth, to turn America into cash. They didn't want to give any more to the global trade system or the demands of the crown, be it taxation, or more importantly, uh, uh, re reduction in the amount of uh, trade that the U.S. could uh, carry off. The Boston Tea Party, people think of, of as some sort of protest against the tax on tea. That's not the case. There was no tax on tea that led to the Boston Tea Party. What had happened was is that for a number of complicated reasons, the British had decided to unwind, or had decided that they needed to recapitalize basically the uh, the, uh, the, the East India Company, which was producing tea in vast quantities in the Indian uh, subcontinent and was then having to, you know, uh, send it around the world as part of our beloved triangle trade, uh, and that uh, as a way to streamline its operations, the Crown said, look, all tea is going to come through, uh, not through individual uh, uh, purveyors that you make deals with as individual merchants in Boston, which allow you to act as a middleman for the global uh, trade, we would like you to get all of your tea from the uh, East India Company, which, you know, that's a guaranteed revenue stream for them, props them up, essentially a public bailout of the private company, but they are not really, they're the same thing, basically. The state and these, these like, corporate organs are, at, at the very root, the same thing. And that was a con that's a conflict of interest between the, the, the uh, like, the British economy as a thing in which America's colony, like, colonies are part of, and the new local domestic elite, the large landowners and, and merchants in North America, to, who did not see it that way. And so the T Dawson Tea Party was a rebellion against the uh, reduction in the freedom of trade of merchants. Not even the tea, not people who got the tea, people who buy the tea and then resell it. And the fact is, is that the, the Tea Act that was being protested brought tea prices down. It was more efficient. It reduced overhead. What it did is it cut the margins of the fucking Boston merchants. So if you understand that, you understand the Constitution is the way it is to protect in the interests of power, to protect the people who hold capital, to make sure that we have enough of a facade of democracy to allow for um, you know, the expression of political demands that are channeled away from real centers of power and towards structural epiphenomenon, like the political system. So that's an idealist, but so, so that's why, that's the actual materialist understanding of why the Constitution says what it says, why it values what it values. And the thing about an idea, but the thing is, is that whether it's materialist understanding of that historical moment or an idealist one, me saying it is an idea. It's still an abstraction. It's still an idea. Adhering to it is adhering to an idea. But it is an idea that is generated by an understanding of reality as a material interaction, not as an idealized place where ideas are disconnected from the material conditions that uh, generate them. And so class consciousness is simply uh, workers going from believing what the superstructure of capitalist society tells them to believe, because that's the beauty of, that's why idealist history is reactionary, that's why idealism is reactionary, 
because it serves capital by neutralizing dissent from it. All of that alienation I feel as a alienated and exploited capitalist subject gets steamed away because I believe ideas about what what like what the constitution stands for, what good and bad are, how what happened in history that rip me away from the reality of my daily capital exploitation. When I've come to the realization that oh it is actually material interests that shape this stuff, that the Constitution doesn't have value beyond its cl ability to assert class rule, and that therefore I am in opposition to these systems, that, that because the content of their ideas is meaningless. And you are, you then are uh, put in a position where you can banish the ghosts, the spooks of the constitutional order, of democracy, of patriotism, all that stuff. And it's because you have adapted an idea... It's still an idea that you drive through every day and that takes, you know, uh, individual experience and gives an order and gives turns into an ideology and a praxis, but it is generated by real experience of real oppression, not by being in, convinced of ideas. That's secondary. That is why liberalism will always be uh, at the at a fundamental basis incompatible with um, with Marxism with socialism and will have to be defeated. It can be negotiated with and used against itself because it's ruled by that non-class class, that lower middle class, that is the party of politics. That's the political party, is the lower middle class. Because the super rich, politics is beside the point. They just sign checks. For the poor, it's beside the point because they have no power. All power when you have all the power and none of the power in a political system, you have no reason to care about it. It's in that middle strata that we convince ourselves that there's meaning in this politics because we do things like have jobs that are positioned in tension between proletariat and, uh, and capitalist and pull us in one or another direction. And that push and pull is what generate politics as we understand it. So does that make sense, the difference between ide uh, of, uh, idealism and materialism? The middle class is, is the political class, and, they, and they're the ones who, who assign values to this stuff and then fight over them. Because that's what keeps them literally paid. That's why we have uh, professional politicians. That's why we have a professional political media. That's why that stuff exists, to so keep everybody busy. And also, at a certain level, you steer the ship. You are able to exert pressure, but it is at a very fast remove. And the more removed, the more it's ruled by idealistic understandings of ideas and not materialist understanding of ideas and values. But that's uh, one thing that's interesting about, I'm not going to talk too much about it because we're going to talk about it tomorrow, but the section of uh, the book that we're reading, that I'm reading, uh, the section of uh, the Republic for which it stands, is in the process of talking, he, he does a very good job of talking about the, 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 uh, the history of the ideological war that's being fought among the, you know, the middle class throughout that period. And he, he essentially is able to very, very elegantly explain to you how the word liberal went from being, in the 19th century, 
conservative, classical liberal, to meaning now progressive, whatever we want to call that. And he explains the process, and it is one whereby the same class of people, not the same individual people, the same class of people go from believing in free market, laissez-faire economics, to becoming, so you know, uh, in, uh, opposed to, you know, in favor of like radical state intervention on behalf of class and race discrimination, right? How does that happen? And what happens is, is that we went from a time when liberalism was cor what corresponded with the idea of positive change and revolution when it had revolutionary potential. Because remember, the first part of the Communist Manifesto is all Mengels and Marx praising capitalism for the way that it uprooted old uh, traditions that pre uh, uh, prevented humankind from reaching its potential. That, that, like, when it talks about all that solid melting into air, you know, uh, at that time, a lot of that uh, destruction was truly creative destruction in the Schumpeterian sense. Like, that was part of capitalism's potential. And it did shape things. And it created institutions and ideas that were going to go on to challenge capitalism, like Marxism. Couldn't have had it without capitalism emerging to, to, to define itself against. And, like, the idea of, of taking the unleashed energies of, like, a more rationalized economy, a more technologically in intensive economy, which means a less sacred economy, which means a more exploitative uh, economy, because it, it abstracts human potential and human life away and makes it fungible. Like, it makes slavery something, like, antebellum American slavery, or not just the United States, but Western Hemispheric slavery, was uniquely terrible in the in history of most slave societies because it was the most, uh, it's the one where slaves themselves were, these, were the most uh, fungible, where they were turned into an exchange, they were, like, they became capital, and that had never really happened before. Not necessarily because of like an evil of intent, but just just a, a rationality and efficiency of exchange being entered into the mechanism. So that's terrible, but it also has it, it's what gives us the technological innovation to store surplus and 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 allow ourselves to build like build culture, which is to say the ability to come into recognition that we are not individuals or parts of clans or something, but part of a human race. The, the, the coming into itself that, that Hegel speaks about and that Marx describes as like the, the ideal arc of human consciousness. Not necessarily one that we will get to. Common ruin of the contending classes is the ruler in the clubhouse right now, ladies and gentlemen. Get your bets in while you can. But there is still... There is a teleological heart to that, and it requires us to harness these things instead of allowing them to totally over, overpower us and overcome us. So in that era, liberals were, in a sense, revolutionary. Like during the Civil War, they said we must uproot this hoary old feudal concept of buying and, and selling people, which was now interacting with capitalism to create something horrifying that was worse than anything ever seen before, because you're taking a feudal concept of power, like a mystified, coercive concept of power, and electrifying it with the fucking profit motive, and with uh, with modern uh, technological uh, facilitations of trade, and and monetization and financialization of capital, it it was it created a monstrosity that had never been seen before. 
But when it was harnessed the right way, you had the yeoman fantasy of North America. You have the small holder who is himself free of superstitions, free of old institutions, free of lords, free of government of any kind, able to exert himself freely on the land. Sure, it required the displacement of the Indians, but hey, eventually, once they got with the program, they would become citizens like us. They'll all become citizens like us. On the long line, everybody becomes a citizen, which means an autonomous being. And that was an, an idea of liberty, a liberal idea of liberty, that is Anglo-American in origin, because that is where capitalism accelerated off of the plane and created its own thing, that it then recapitulated across the land through the ever-tightening crank of Wallenstein's world system. But it promised liberation. But then by the 1870s and 80s, after having used the power of the sword to end slavery, but then refused to use it to allow uh, the former slaves to become integrated into the political system and to the, the social system, which could have been possible, but would have required the, the subordination of capital to a social end. And the powers at the moment did not align to allow that to happen. Instead, the social end was, was sacrificed to the creation of a, a new leviathan of public and private power that used that power to immiserate, to bash away the, the tendrils of connection socially that it had been allowed to uh, build and also hack away at those, those freedom tendrils. That, that, that's, that the ability to be a yeoman sufficient farmer, even who would never have to sell his labor, that's gone. Because even the farmers are, are fucking working for banks or railroads. And what, had, when, what was the result? Uh, the return of uh, despoilative, monstrous, co coercive labor and racial apartheid in the South. The mass immiseration of peasants, uh, in, in the, or of former peasants rather, uh, who would pile up as refuse in uh, the eastern cities, the Catholic uh, peasantry turned into a hyper-exploited urban laboring class, devoid of any ability to, to raise themselves up to the idea of like a middle-class American standard. And then um, out west, the slow but steady massacre of the continent's uh, uh, original inhabitants. The, the civilized army coming in and literally destroying a people. Uh, a people who even these liberals could see held virtues in their social order that were not to be found in the, in the coarse soil of this new society they created. And what happened is, is that over time, the liberals got pissed off and became conservative. But the younger liberals who came up after them, who started believing they're the same ideas, came from the same social milieu, which is important. And when I say that, I mean the Whig social milieu of middle class, um, polite society in the East Coast. Boston, Philadelphia, New York. That's what we're talking about. The Shermer Horns of Fifth Avenue from, uh, from uh, Gangs of New York. By the mid-1880s or so, the, 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 the liberal idea had failed so comprehensively that you either became a conservative, you either uh, just decided that you were reactionary, or if you were younger and you were see, coming into life seeing the failure of the ideas as they're being told to you, you accommodate the new reality that, okay, 
there's, there has to be a level of state intervention greater than what we think in order to allow capitalism to exist, allow individual freedom, allow contract liberty, the things we worship. We have to have longer, uh, we have to have more of a state intervention or else the whole thing will just collapse into savagery, savage domination, like the kind we banished with the Civil War, we thought. And that's when you get progressives. And it isn't, it's the same social group. That's the important thing to notice. And then the changeover is one of the, is the one is the same sort of transition over time through attrition, the one funeral at a time um, progress that Thomas Kuhn talks about in the structure of scientific revolutions, when he says that scientific change doesn't happen because people are convinced of new by new evidence. The old people die and new scientists show up and they learn the right thing because they're they don't already have the wrong thing in their head. It's the same thing with the social sciences, which is essentially what we're talking about. These po these the political groupings around the parties and the uh, the institutions of uh, like consent manufacturing in the mass media, those things are all part of that. Um, they are part of that same class, that same class that gravitates around the finance capital of the East Coast uh, cities, and so they become progressives. And that progressive vision over time, that like eventually it has to absorb race because the, the crisis becomes too deep along racial lines to, for them to imagine civilization that is civilized capitalism to exist. They're the forces within capitalism trying to insist on social, uh, on a social peace that is short of the naked authoritarianism of the slave owner. They're essentially trying to clothe the slave owner's a steel hand with a velvet mitt of democracy and rule of law and all those things. But the thing is, is that that habit of mind comes from living in polite, literally polite society. And since the beginning of American history, they have been at battle with local ruling power that is not as connected, uh, maybe connected in the sense that it needs Eastern capital, but not intimately connected in its dealings with Eastern capital, local power. First the slave-owning South, and then the petty uh, barons who made up the uh, counter-New Deal reactionary core took over the Republican Party. The beautiful boaters. They're the unsheathed uh, fist. What is this? Uh, a theory reaches crisis, then the different new theories emerge to replace the old one. Exactly. You get to a point where new shit comes to light because of experimental models, because of crises within the prevailing ideas. And then the old people insist it's still uh, wrong, but then they die, and the new people who become scientists adapt to the more persuasive model. That's what happens among social scientists. But they can only go so far because they are all committed to capitalism sustaining itself. They are always assuming that this is to keep society functional. And it's because they are civilized, because they're in the drawing rooms of the East and they're connected to global capital flows and they're, connect, they're connected to the global system and they get the highest education. They realize that a lot of the stuff that is blood and thunder in politics, racial distinctions, national distinctions, are actually meaningless and that capital is the really the only thing. They essentially get inducted into uh, the room in network where Ned Beatty gives them the talk. Like, they get that talk through their genes and their blood and through their social interactions. You don't get that in the frontier. 
And the American political contest is basically, except for the period from like 1933 until about 1979, uh, when the working class asserts itself as an actual force in politics, they are the only two people arguing. Those are the polls that politics is argued around. And that is now how we have the alignment that we have. And what we're seeing with the non-college educated people entering uh, uh, into the electorate and voting for Trump and voting for the Republicans, regardless of their race to some degree, uh, uh, at least outside of you know the definitional character of black America, although even there you're seeing a small trend, it's because for a lot of those working class people, they were never convinced by any of the, of the cultural stuff, any of the cultural shit about Demo the Democratic Party, they were there for the actual uh, working class part. They were there for the, work, the assertion of working class uh, uh, interests. But that's gone, and it's only the shell of the Democratic Party that still has it. And people are essentially losing their brand loyalty. They're seeing, like, the, the fucking, the, the label is coming off the can, and all they're seeing is a fucking can of shit. They're, they're seeing a, a can of accelerated capitalist exploitation, but with a, a gloss of social values that they were never inculcated into, because they're not part of the political class. The college going to polite class. And the reason it's confused is because there was a third force here that drove these, a lot of people, regardless of where they got their culture, uh, to the Democrats. And that was uh, articulated working class influence on the political process, which started with the Great Depression and ended with the crisis of the 70s. You could even argue it, it honestly ended with the purging of uh, the uh, communists from the CIO in the early 50s, if you want to like get real uh, class technical with it. But it's one or the other. It starts in 33, and it's over by, at the latest, Reagan, and maybe even by fucking Eisenhower. So, there you go. Those are the, those are the forces at work. Those are the fighters. Those are, those are Moriarty and Holmes going over the falls. It's urban... Middle class, finance capitalized, culturally uh, progressives who used to be in the 1850s liberal in the classical sense because that's what constituted revolutionary thought at the time. But the contradictions within liberalism required a new answer. And progressivism emerged from that conflict and then the liberals all died off or their, their real inheritors are cranks who turned into conservatives from that position. But those people are perverts. They're not part of the same process. So what you have now is an alliance between the perverted middle class, the perverted college educated, and then uh, the non-perverse reactionary, who are both rich and poor. Similarly, the left, uh, the Democratic Party, is um, a few middle-class perverts who are like perverted. Are, uh, no, I'm talking about like, at, okay, no, if I'm talking about like actual, no, 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 no middle-class perverts. Because the thing is, is that you think they're perverts 
because they're against capitalism, but that's just it. They're not. They're the ones trying to keep this thing going. They're the ones trying to clothe this thing in enough human skin to keep the fucking villagers from fleeing. They are actually working in capitalism interest. So they're not perverse. They're not perverse at all. The real perverts are the ones who decide that they are actually opposed to capitalism in its entirety and therefore the liberal project of sustaining capitalism, but they still are emotionally invested in the Democratic Party and people within it and root for them on a visceral emotional level. There is some perversion. So there you go. Those are your working middle-class perverts within the Democratic Party. And, of course, the Groypers and the fucking Pepe types are the pervert middle-class people among the Republicans. And then you've got the people who still think that the Democratic Party means something, but it doesn't anymore. Democratic Party does not mean anything. The, the, it's, when, the, when the working class ceased to be a coherent pressure group within it, it was over. Oh man, that Google union. I don't want to. I don't want to talk out of turn too much because I don't actually know the specifics of the thing. Uh, but so Google has announced this union drive, and from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a minority union that does not have the ability, and it, I think is actually legally enjoined from negotiating over salary, right? And like I think also most working condition stuff. What it is, they've said, is essentially a way to facilitate activism within Google. And a lot of the people who I've seen interviewed about it are inclusivity directors. And the thing about that is, is that those all those inclusivity jobs that are in corporations that they like to point to, like the diversity and inclusivity uh, director, the kind of jobs that uh, uh, people often demand, get people who get, like... A lot of times you'll see protests at universities that they that that uh, are about increasing diversity or you know uh, minority representation and minority quality of life and they will demand like diversity officers and stuff. Those are HR. That's HR. That's the people whose job it is to find a way to fire you without lose without having to pay for it. That's their that's the that's what they are in the hierarchy. HR departments exist to reduce liability of corporations vis-a-vis -vis their employees. They're a way to union bust and uh, reduce liability of the, of the company to in, uh, be employee behavior. And they, and they are also mostly used to intimidate employees. They are fucking Pinkertons. They're white-collar Pinkertons. And if there are people who are organizing, if people organizing the Google union are fucking HR officers, then it is a company union that will only be used to get people fired for posts. That will exist so that if somebody at Google is complaining about something like, I don't know, working conditions, or maybe like, hey, should we be building panopticons for the CI, for the fucking NSA? Or, you know, should we, should we be uh, using Uyghur slave labor for uh, our, uh, you know, 
our fucking phones or whatever. Hey, maybe we should have more uh, direction over the company's investments. They can. There's something problematic. They said there's something that uh, that could be used to say that they made a hostile work environment. Those people's job will be to find it, and then when they get fired for troublemaking, it will be a win for workers' power. That's the sickness in it. That's the sickness at the heart of this. This is why this machine is so dastardly and breathtaking in its power because. Everything is recuperated within it. Every good instinct, every progressive instinct, if it's grounded in capitalism, will eventually find itself ensnared within this contradiction because it cannot be defeated from within. It can only be defeated from without. But anyway, that's my... I don't know enough about the specifics. All I know is... Diversity and inclusivity, HR people are involved, and it doesn't have the right to actually negotiate over conditions of work and, uh, and wages. That is all I really know, and therefore I'm skeptical. And I feel like when news comes out about this thing, do not just start salivating like a Pavlovian dog because you see the word union. Because it's like capitalism knows that all these things, they know what you guys care about, and they can fucking create... Uh, they are very good at, at, haven't we seen, my God, in the last few years, the way that all cultural expressions of, uh, of like, um, of solidarity and, and social, uh, you know, the aspirations towards social justice are commodified and recuperated instantly into reinforcings of the status quo. You don't think that that would go towards unions too? I'm not saying it does, but it needs to be considered. Just like, don't just immediately have to defend something when you don't know the context, when so much of this stuff is designed to capture and dissipate energy, which is why, once again, broken record me, disengaging from the discourse is so vital because the fucking Google union doesn't really concern you. There's nothing you can do about it. They're not going to stop unionizing because you posted that it was cringe and they're not going to keep doing it because you said, go girl. It's not really up to you. You don't have to have an opinion on it. What about, what about, work, what about where you work? What about, what, what about your relationships with other employees in your labor sector? The questions there are going to be closer to the ground and easier to answer and less, less confounding and mystifying by their association with the, the, this inherently... Uh, distorting um, matrix of information dissemination. And mainly, I just wanted to say this to say diversity and inclusivity offices are they don't work for you. They work for the company. They exist as organs of control. They're not your friend. And I think that's something that is unarguable. And if you see anyone defending that, that's sus. Because I do believe that you should always under, uh, admit good faith. You should always assume good faith in, because otherwise you just get into the cycle of where it's nothing but friend and foe and nothing is learned. Because you cannot dialogue, which is the only way to generate new understanding and new meaning. Uh, but man, if you're, if you're going to say that HR departments are not, explain to me how they don't. Where are they getting their paychecks? I mean, how much of their stock is... How much of their fucking... Uh, um, by the way, how much of their fucking salary is literally stock options? 
How much is their personal political wealth connected to the ups and downs of the public uh, estimation of the company they work for? And how does that put them in your corner in any dispute with any other employee or with them? Oh, it's a bad take. Okay, never mind. Never mind. If you want to explain to me how that's how I'm wrong, tell me. They're direct employees. And also, like, if that's your job, if your specialty is HR, then you can't really work in anything else anyway. So it's not like you can go outside of the system to be some sort of editorial HR, some omnibudsman of employment, because there's no one there to fund that. Follow the money is usually in banali the right thing to say about any of this stuff. The Mothman stood at the intersection of idealism and materialism because the Mothman, I think, can be understood, at least in part, as a manifestation of human mental energy. Literally transubstantiating ideas into material reality. And that's why I think it's such a fascinating case and something that I think is due a much better much better filmic uh, interpretation than that dog shit Richard Gere movie. My God. That was so clearly an attempt to just rip off the X-Files. Let's do the X-Files for a movie, but it's not X-Files. Going with the very dark, foreboding attitude, trying to make it scary, which, huge mistake. Mothman is a comedy. One million percent. Mothman is a goddamn comedy. If, if it's going to work, it's going to be a comedy. Instead, it was this, like, brooding, scary, like, thriller that had, like, a few scary voice telephone calls. That was about as scary as got, like, a voice going, Oh, there's going to be a bad disaster coming. Oh, no, they're going to be, they're going to fall in the river. And then some eyes in the darkness or something. Dog shit. Terrible. There needs to be a better uh, Mothman. We deserve a better class of Mothman around this joint. Because I like the idea of, like, maybe it was an MK Ultra site, you know? And maybe it was, at the same time as that, it was a harmonic convergence of, like, electromagnetic fields or something that could get the human tuning forks pinged, get our pineal glands juiced. And maybe they actually created a fucking Mothman. Maybe they made a real Mothman. Pulled it out of the multiverse. Oh, Influencer Watch. Is that that kind of uh, Kiwiki thing where it's supposed to be public dossiers of all of the left influencers who are making your children uh, trans? They're supposed to be for paranoid right-wingers to like keep an eye on us. It's pretty funny. I'm flattered, certainly, that they think I'm worth uh, keeping track of. I guess that's the podcaster equivalent of 
60s radicals uh, seeing if they have an FBI file. Yes, much, much lamer. I know. That's the point, is that we're much lamer. We're not, we're not the men our fathers were debris. We don't even look like them. Like Nixon's enemies list. Oh, oh boy. Somebody asked me about the Bronze Age pervert. I really, honestly, I get, I think about it for a second and I just think, I'm tired, I can't. I've never been able to will myself to, to spend more than a second going like this at his profiling. Aspiring nude bodybuilder? What? I mean, how do you aspire to be a nude bodybuilder? What's keeping you from bodybuilding nude? Is it that like you have to go to Planet Fitness? Are you aspiring to the day that Planet Fitness drops its clothing necessary uh, uh, policies and allows you to go in there nude? Like you can't fucking lift in your backyard or something with no pants on? And after that, I just stopped paying attention. I mean, anybody who wants to talk, who's like valorizing the bronze age, it's like, get out of here. You're non-dialectical. I don't want to redo this shit. I want to fucking advance the ball down the goddamn field. I'm on the team. You're not on the fucking team if you want to just chill in the goddamn bronze age. Sorry. You're on a team, you want to advance the ball down the field. You're, you're not fucking in it for stats. Will the internet ad market collapse? This is a very interesting question. So I was talking about this with Felix on Twitter yesterday. It is obviously a fact, I think, undisputed by any serious commentator that Advertising as such doesn't really work. It never has. It does not have the, it, there's no proof that it has the relationship to production, to purchasing that we think it does. What it does though, is it provides a context for purchases. It makes purchases possible. You cannot have a consumer society that buys as much as we do and associates our, our freedoms as much as we do with our purchases without advertising. Not individual ads, but the concept. If we are not being advertised to, we will not be we will not trade our freedom for purchases because they will not be emotionally charged. They will not be turned into fetishes by advertising. It literally does magic to our brains to associate not even specific things, but categories of purchases as connected to pleasure, as connected to Self-actualization. Uh, they manufacture the, um, they manufacture not just the consent, <clears throat> but the self-interest that that consent is grounded in, which is, I get this stuff. Why does this stuff matter? Because I'm seeing this art. I'm seeing this culture that produces these values every second, and it defines my brain. My brain wants what it's given to want. So that's what ads do. But specifically, ads don't do anything. And what we have with the online ad is a situation where the only thing that drives money through the Silicon Valley pipe 
because we all know that Silicon Valley is built on borrowed money. It's all really qualita quantitatively ease money. It's just the Fed just putting numbers on a board and tip. Uh, they they essentially put numbers on a board to create a bunch of money in D.C. And then they just tip the board of the United States over and it all oozes over into the fucking Bay Area in the form of fucking investments in uh, the tech industry, most of which are never seen again. But where there is money to be made there, it is in companies that are almost entirely predicated on ad dollars. Google and Facebook, the only one of these companies that actually make money and make the most money. And, and companies that sell, and the companies that are like that and that do make short-term profits that boost up mid, like short-term uh, short like returns for hedge funds all come from ad revenue-based businesses. That's where the money comes from. Not from selling a real thing, not from a real product, from selling eyeball space. It doesn't do anything. They just found out that uh, of the $150 million that, uh, uh, that Lyft, or that, yeah, Lyft was spending, or Uber rather, Uber was spending on targeted online ads, that they were overpaying by $100 million because... The numbers were all just made up by these companies in terms of like look-throughs and click-through, like the stuff that's supposed to prove that people are actually watching it. It's all ginned up. It's all made up. It's Arthur Anderson stuff. It's mark-to-market accounting. It's Enron. And so they just found out, oh, here it is. It, literally 100, 100% of the money we were spending, no, no, 200% of the money we were spending on ads was wasted. It didn't move the needle at all. But the thing about it is, is that it doesn't matter. No, Even if you knew this, even if this got out in some way and it became common knowledge, it wouldn't change anything because the ad dollars are not there to represent value in the forms of actual value for ads any more than advertisements exist to drive purchases of a specific product. They're there to create the flow of money through the system that capitalism necessitates. They are the capillary action. It's, that is what we have, that's the, that is the real value. It is the same as the petrodollar. It is a data dollar. Data is the stored value where we hold the exchange thing, but it's just an abstraction of our relationship to the economy our relationship to America's uh, government because it's all backed on America's state capacity. That is what backs all exchanges within the dollar-denominated system. American state capacity. Specifically, it's military. And as long as that's the case, there will be a wind of money pushing through as long as everyone agrees that these things represent ad dollars. Now, that means that it's incredibly, incredibly unstable and rickety and could be blown over by a gust of wind, but also it is so crucial to the maintenance of the system as such, and with no alternative really presenting itself in the moment, means that it's essentially unmovable in the near-term future. No wonder everyone is always on the edge all the time. Everything is in this state where you're reaching a deep crisis within these systems, but they are more than ever crucial load-bearing parts of the system. So what happens? Who's to say?
And the real point of the money going through the Silicon Valley turnpuckle, it creates an actual economy in, in like the, the physical space, a real estate-based economy in California that is essentially a buy-off to the ruling local classes of California. It's like, yes, yes, sorry, sorry. We're destroying the, the, the country's economy. We're turning it all, we're turning all jobs into techno-feudal surf jobs where we've stripped you of all benefits and all uh, control over your labor. Sorry. In exchange, we will build it here and get your val price values up through the roof so that every fucking asshole, like a public school teacher who bought a house in the fucking South Bay is now a millionaire. Bottom off. But then what it does for the global system is it creates technolo technology of control and coercion in the form of the panopticon that they're building with our money. They're literally building with our money the panopticon around us. They're building the robot, the RoboCop is in our head is being constructed. So that's very important. And then there's another one too, I forgot. There's another thing that it's building, like an actual thing that's being produced in, exchange, in addition to the Panopticon technology. Ah, oh, fuck, I forgot. Now, of course they've been doing it since the 70s. This is all when the, this whole thing started in the 70s. Of course it did. Its roots are all over California. California is when the reaction began. America was this tide pushing itself towards the ocean and then when it hit the fucking uh, border, it pushed back. American modern reactionary thought its entire superstructure was built in California. Fucking Orange County is, is, the, is the birthplace of the modern conservative movement just in terms of the political structure. The defense industry that built the Southern California economy is what we, where we directed our Keynesian spending after World War II and which absorbed all of our social forces away from productive ones and towards... War towards a creating a fucking empire as opposed to directing, you know, uh, our surplus towards democratizing life in America by investing inward. No, no, we had to create weapons. And it all started in California. Because that was the end of the myth, the real end. We didn't get it, the memo. We haven't got the memo till now. But the body felt it back then. And it reacted instantaneously. The, the machine app operated to its own advancement, because it is an algorithm. It is Skynet. And only unless the humans get together to fight and subdue it, it will consume everything, because that's the difference between capitalism and all previous modes of production. All previous modes of production, at the end of the day, were for human benefit. Maybe the benefit of a small clique of people at the very top, but there was no one outside the human race who had a say. Capitalism is able to, was able to take over the world because it abstracts away from the person the violence of coercion and towards systems that let us off the hook for carrying out violence. And that's why we're able to co coerce each other through the machinery of turning people into modern subjects, which is a violent, destructive mech thing that killed everybody. That machinery killed everybody from the deaths of imperialism to slavery to all the deaths under communism, the fucking Great Leap Forward, every fucking hollow door more you want to talk about. The fucking Pol Pot and the goddamn, it's all part of that same process of abstracting away from daily life literal sacredness, God, human, spirituality. 
and turning it into an abstraction. And that charge, that abstraction with godhood. And capital is God in the sense that even if you got everybody in a room together they would, and they all wanted to do what's best for everybody, they would be compelled, not by any person in that room. Even if they all said what they felt in their heart, they would not find the traitor because the traitor is in their head. It's the market. And that ha- we can only, by concentrating our fucking energies and, and coordinating our activities against it, can we actually fight it. I'm a Libra. No, wait a minute. Is that the, bit, the main one? What's the star sign? Capricorn moon. I think the Capricorn moon is what keeps me so grounded. Capitalism kind of sus, not going to lie. I agree. Shit's whack. But at the same time, like like Ash in Aliens, Alien, you have to admire its purity. It is, like, it is the antagonist to humanity that we literally built to destroy ourselves. It's kind of wild. Like our inability to cooperate, our inability to trust, led us to create systems that allowed us to allow our guard down enough about our hostility and our essential zero-sum relationship to reality that allowed us to sleep at night, which is to abstract them away into weapons and then into systems of thought and control that act as weapons or that coordinate the action of weapons. And that created something that was greater than the power of any of us, and that turned us all into sorcerers' apprentices. And now we, it's run away from us. It's captured us. Like you cut off a limb and it will grow back with this same algorithm unless it's uprooted. It has to be pulled out. And that's only by taking that which it has created and turning it into the best version of itself, which is the most coordinated version, which is the most spiritually charged version, which is the part of humanity that is able to act really as one, not smoothly, not easily, but socially to have the coordinated power of a single organism. Those will be the people who have broken free of, of their addiction to, to catharsis through entertainment, which encompasses everything from uh, pornography to politics to uh, sports, to online politics, obviously. All right, I'm going to wrap it up here. Anybody has a last question? It includes everything. 
I'm not saying that everybody, anybody can log off completely. That's absurd. It's impossible. It's part of us, and it will never be logged off. Like, you can't imagine that any future that's going to be able to redeem humanity is going to be one where we have a Luddite cut a disconnection from one another digitally. It has to be re recreated and refounded. But it's 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 part of the it's part of the flesh now. It has to be worked from and through that contradiction. It can't just be ignored. Yes, the solution is that we get all we all get ketted up. Get ketted up and, and just all have a giant chill down sesh. I think that's the key. Alright. Somebody asked this is a good last question. Somebody asked what was the best movie of twenty twenty. Honestly, I don't know if I saw a movie in twenty twenty because I didn't see any movies in theaters in 2020, and honestly, without it even as a possibility, I just haven't treated any movie I've seen like a movie, you know? I really do think of it as a separate experience in the cinema. Everything's kind of blunted together into one, like, vaguely disappointing streaming experience. 20, Joker was last year, or 2019. People are saying first cow, but I don't know, man. That seems like kind of a seems a little uh, feels a little homeworky. Maybe Crudes too. Maybe I have to watch that. Uncut Gems was twenty nineteen too. Twenty nineteen was a really good year for movies. It was kind of a good send off year, uh, capped off, of course, by uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is fucking brilliant. Maybe that's fine. Maybe maybe movies are a different thing now. You know, vaudeville isn't a thing anymore. There really isn't a... Like, you cannot... If you wanted to, you couldn't really go out for a night and see a guy juggle, which you used to be able to do. Maybe, maybe, maybe movies will be like the juggling guy or the fat guy getting shot with a cannon. Special occasion things. And if that's the case, fine. But I feel we will have lost something. And I will not really take these... I just won't give as much of my attention to these streaming movies. At least I hope not, because I think that that's only fair, that I give it less attention and less emotional investment if it's going to be less special. Yeah, streaming is too individualistic. There's no group component. And really, art is at its most... I think popular art is at its most magical when it can be shared collectively. Which is why movies are better than TV shows, damn it. They'll always be better. Movies were better. 
we can say that. It's not just being grumpy old men, although, of course, part of it is that. Part of it is just being grumpy old men. Dang it, get off of my digital lawn. How about that? Get off my digital lawn. Bye-bye.